Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are holy. We thank you that your holiness was made evident to us when you created us. That who that knowledge of who you are and your standards was written on our hearts when you originally created us. Lord, we thank you that even when the human race wandered so far away from that, that you then wrote it all down for us so that we could read it and we could become restored to you through the death of your son. Lord, we thank you for your word that it is timeless, that we can be confident in its truth, that no matter what time, decade, century it is or what culture we live in, that it will always remain true. I pray that you would bless my mouth this morning, that I may only speak the words that you want me to speak, nothing more, nothing less, and that you would receive all the glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Little kids will very often be in their own little world, won't they? I remember being in my own little world a lot when I was little. My mother would oftentimes have to tell me something that she wanted me to do a few different times before it actually registered. This was especially true when I was playing with my Power Rangers action figures. It just wouldn't register. Just this past week, Cheeries and, 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 and my oldest, Aurora, was being in her own little world, looking at her picture books. And Cherie and I wanted her to listen to us and do something we wanted her to do, and I asked her a few times over the course of a couple minutes with zero response. When I asked her a fourth time, she suddenly exclaimed out of nowhere, I'm not a child! I mean, what do you say to that? <laughs> she, she finally listened to us, but it was a mystery to Cheery and me as to where she had heard that exclamation from. We kept wondering until it dawned on me that she had been watching uh, The Little Mermaid recently. And Disney fans know what I'm talking about. In a, little in a little kid way, Aurora took Ariel from The Little Mermaid as her example and decided to copy Ariel's behavior, mimicking her lines to her father. In our passage this morning, Paul has to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with the Thessalonians, telling them that if they're not sure how to live out the changes they need to make to take the way that he, Silas, and Timothy behaved as their example, as they took Jesus as their example. Now, this is only part one of the overall point of this section. We're going to establish the underlying foundation for the mind frame that Paul wants the Thessalonians to have and then get into the specifics of the Thessalonians' context and what that means for us when we cover part two. But this morning we're laying out the foundation for the, for the mind frame that Paul wants the Thessalonians to have. And in order to do that, we're actually only going to focus on the very first part of verse six today. And this is the first part. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, and we read, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all we're going to use today from 2 Thessalonians. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he didn't say, now you listen to me, listen up, as if the Thessalonians just needed to do as he said 
because he was speaking out of his own authority. At the same time, this also wasn't Paul invoking the name of Jesus to make the Thessalonians listen to him. He backs up what will follow with a reminder of the spirit of Jesus' actions. In other words, the believers in Thessalonica needed to obey Paul's words because Paul's words were merely a reflection of what Jesus gave for us to follow. And this is what we'll focus on today, that underlying foundation. When I first started studying this passage, I thought I knew where I was going to go with it. But God laid something different on my heart as I started studying this, and I only got so far as those first two lines. And I don't normally do this, as you all know. But today is, is going to be a little different. It's, it's going to be a day of addressing a couple of politically charged hot-button issues. And you know, I don't normally do that. And you might be even thinking, I picked the wrong Sunday to be here today. You might wonder, what does this have to do with our passage this morning? And here's how. What Paul will be writing to the Thessalonians is admonishment towards a minority of the church that they apparently follow what they, they didn't follow what he said the first time. And Paul's first letter to them, he gives them correction for something that some in the church had been doing. If you'll remember, there was a group within the Thessalonian church who believed that they were already living in apocalyptic events and let their fear drive them to quit their jobs, uproot their families out of their communities, abandon their church, and head for the hills. Paul will address this for a second time in this section, which we'll cover in part two, the specifics of that. For now, what we need to see is that this group's answer to their fear was to run away from everything. And instead of facing it in a Christ-like and appropriate way, their answer to their fear was to run away from everything. What we know about this group also shows us that sometimes we as believers in Jesus can be so focused on one political, social, or religious topic so much that it distracts us from the everyday job Jesus has given to us of spreading the gospel and sharing his love. We become so consumed with addressing a certain cause that it distracts us and we forget the everyday job that God has given to us, that Jesus has given to us of spreading the gospel and sharing his love. The Apostle John referred to Jesus as the embodiment of the word of God. You can read about that in John chapter 1. So when we, when we talk about the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to understand what the whole word of God, how the whole word of God views the world and how we as believers in Jesus should be inter interacting with it. So in connecting this group from the Thessalonian church that Paul is admonishing to us today, we often have two extremes in the church for how to handle highly politicized issues. On one hand, we disconnect ourselves from the real world and head for the hills, never having a biblical understanding of them and never knowing how to relate that understanding to someone else. On the other hand, we go the polar opposite and we're so consumed with protesting and trying to change laws that we forget the everyday personal sharing of Jesus' truth and love. 
My goal today is not to bash different people, and I hope that does not come across at all, but to give crystal clear scriptural reasons for God's righteous standards, no matter what time or culture we live in. This will help us to navigate through the fog of cultural relativism that's so popular today. Scripture, this is what I want us to see. Scripture is very clear. As Romans 1 points out, the problem is not a lack of scriptural clarity. The problem is a refusal to see it and live by it. That's what the problem is. There are many in today's culture who think something is permissible behavior because they claim that Jesus never said anything against it or even about it. However, that line is extremely dangerous if you hold to the truth of the entirety of the Bible. Just because Jesus didn't say anything specific about any given topic, that does not mean that he gave permission to indulge in it. To think that is narrow-minded. Here's why. Jesus was working within a Jewish framework as he obeyed the Jewish law perfectly and therefore is the fulfillment of the Jewish law. If he didn't specifically talk about a topic, it doesn't mean he didn't think it was important or that he approved it. If Jesus didn't talk about a topic, it meant that within the conservative Jewish culture he was primarily ministering in, he knew certain things went without saying. He didn't think he needed to say anything about him. If you were Jewish and recognized Jesus as the Messiah and followed him and his teaching, in your mind, you didn't suddenly toss out all the commandments of the law and the standards you received from reading all the prophets, including the foundations for humanity laid out in Genesis. However, since Jesus was prophesied as being the deliverer of the entire world and not just the Jewish people, the writings included in the New Testament deal with the expanding body of faith that now included both Jewish and non-Jewish or Gentile believers in Jesus. The Holy Spirit then led the New Testament writers to affirm what needed to be affirmed from the Jewish law for believers in Jesus. As one biblical scholar pointed out, this affirmation is known in the New Testament as the law of Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians 9 that Paul explains, he he tells the Jewish people about Jesus by using the law and the prophets to point to Jesus as the Messiah. But then when he talks to Gentiles, he employs a different strategy. He says to those who are without law, the Gentiles, I become as without law without the Jewish law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He didn't toss everything out the window so that I might win those who are without law. So I might win those to Christ who are Gentiles and not under the Jewish law. See, Paul still points out that there is a moral law set up by God, but it's the law of Christ. Now, what's the law of Christ? It can be summed up in one word, right? Love, right? But what kind of love? A a standardless love? Not at all. Jesus summed up what kind of love that embodies the law of Christ when he said, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, And this, this is... Vital to see here. Um, These two commandments depend the entire law 
and prophets, the entire Old Testament, hinge on these two commandments. In our culture today, it's a little easier to understand the second greatest commandment, right? It's a little easier to understand that one. To love your neighbor as yourself, that includes the prohibition against murder, adultery, lying, stealing, bullying, and the commandments to be sacrificial, provide for others' needs, and put others' interests ahead of your own. That, that one is a little bit easier for us to understand. However, all of these second greatest commandment commandments are informed by and grow out of the greatest commandment, the first and foremost commandment, because these commandments based on love for our fellow human being are based entirely upon the recognition and love of God, and that inextricably includes His holiness and righteousness. You can't strip that away from God. If you want to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you have to love Him for all of who He is including his holiness and his righteousness. Paul reveals in the book of Romans that when God originally created humankind, there was no need for a written down, a God-given law, because the righteous standards of God were written on their hearts. Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be spending some time in Romans chapter 1, so if you want to flip there, uh, you, you can follow this along with me a little bit easier. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, you can look it up in the table of contents. Uh, Romans chapter 1. And Paul writes in verses 18 through 19, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So what does that mean? It means that the words recorded for us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, originally as human beings were simply understood. We as human beings didn't need them written down for us at that point. We didn't need them interpreted for us. We didn't need them uh, 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 formed to our culture. We just knew them to be true. And what do we read in Genesis 1:27? We read, God created man in his own image. That's what I want to focus on first. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And that brings us to the first hot button topic here. We're only going to talk about two today. And again, I'm not here to bash anybody. But what I want to do is lay out clear scriptural reasoning for why the Bible says these things. The first hot-button issue that this addresses is the very difficult topic of abortion. As we just read, Scripture is very clear that every life is a life created in the image of God. Scripture is also very clear that life starts at conception, and life is thought of by God even before that. Every child that is conceived was thought about by God before they were even conceived. The prophet Jeremiah was confident about this truth when he recorded the words of God, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I thought about you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
In addition to this, David wrote, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And that second half of those verses is incredibly important to our discussion. What clear truth do we especially see in Psalm 139? God counts each human life as a person even before they are conceived. And what equally important truth do we also see? We also see that it's God who determines how many days a life lasts for and what happens to that life. That truth is a source of peace for grieving parents of those who are lost during pregnancy, during birth, or sometime after that. As Jeremiah and, parent, and David were confident about, God knows that that child will be conceived, holds that child in his hands, and weaves that child together himself, and never stops letting go of that child. Some children have the blessing of entering God's presence before they're even born. And some children have the blessing of entering Jesus' presence before the evils of this world can get to them. But what is important about that is that is God's determination. Who determines when that happens is God. It's when we take that position for ourselves that God only reserves for himself that of determining how many days a life lasts for, when we take that position for ourselves, we completely reject the greatest commandment of loving God with all of who we are. Because what are we then doing? We are saying, I am God. I have that right. I can determine how many days this life lasts. It's the exact same standard that the prohibition against murder is built upon. When we say we're pro-choice, what we're really saying is that we believe we have the right to play God and make decisions that we have no right of making, that are only reserved for God to make. What about unintended conceptions of children or children conceived through assault and force? It's a very difficult question. Many women have had to endure those painful scenarios. Many would say God doesn't provide an answer to that. Many would say that I don't have a right to say anything about it. What it all comes down to, though, is when we look at Scripture, How much are we willing to trust the one who thought about that child before that child was even conceived? Could God still have a plan? Could God still redeem that horrible situation? If we firmly believe in God's sovereignty and redemptive power, then the difficult answer is yes. Now, can and will God forgive and heal us if we've been through it? Of course. 
I don't want anyone here to walk away with that misunderstanding. Can, can and will God forgive and heal us if we've been through it? Of course, just like with everything else. As representatives of Jesus, our job is to do what we can to come alongside those who are contemplating their legal options in this country and give them the judgment-free support they need to make the most biblical decisions they need to make. In addition, we need to come alongside those who are suffering the guilt of past decisions and embody embody to them the vast love of God. Is that what we're known for? Are we known for embodying the vast love of God? Do we have the God-given responsibility to do what we can to change the legality and far-reaching power of this evil? Of course. But we also have the God-given responsibility to sacrificially and personally come alongside those who are dealing with these difficult situations and be the representatives of God's love and truth to them. If you are struggling with issues connected to this subject, whether current or from the past, please reach out to us. This is why we are here. The Church of Jesus Christ is to love you and to come alongside you. We are here to come alongside you and to direct you to the healing that can only come from God in a loving way. We also support our local crisis pregnancy center, which employs counselors and provides help and support with the love and truth of Jesus. Living with the law of Christ means having a biblical understanding of this topic. But it also means interacting with the real world the way Jesus did. That's the first hot button topic. The second one is this. Going back to Romans 1, the understanding of God and his righteous standards were originally ingrained in us. We read that in Romans chapter 1. We knew what God defined as right and wrong simply because we were created in his image and therefore were his representatives. A representative does nothing for their own agenda, right? They are only there to represent the interests of the one they're representing. So the basis for understanding God's righteous standards was love for God and for his righteous standards. That is the basis for everything. From understanding what God's standards are, to understanding that we are powerless to obey them fully, to understanding that Jesus is our only hope for salvation. But it all begins with that basis of of loving God and, and, and loving his righteous standards. When that love for God and his holiness... And our understanding of being his representatives to reflect that holiness is given up. Then what happens? Everything is up for grabs. It should be noted that what was also written on our hearts was this. We just simply knew this to be true. Genesis 2.24 For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now why did I bring that up? Again, because it directly connects to a very hot-button issue today. This is the first Sunday in June, a month that many in our nation have dubbed Pride Month. The topic of homosexuality has been so politicized 
that many Christians today don't have a biblical understanding of it, much less a desire to express it in a loving way. And before anybody here tunes me out from hearing this, bear with me. Hear me out first, then make your own decision about it. To deviate even from the to deviate even the slightest from the mainstream understanding of tolerance automatically earns you the labels bigoted, small-minded, narrow-minded, homophobic, or just plain stupid. That's why I say don't tune me out yet. Just hear me out, hear what God's word says, and then you can make your own decision. The arguments range in in rebuttal to what the Bible says. From, if the Old Testament prohibits homosexuality and even prescribes stoning for it, then I guess we should just prohibit the eating of shellfish and make sure our clothes are not made of two different kinds of cloth. That's one argument. Another argument is Jesus never said anything about it, so he must not have cared that much about it. We've already covered the response to the second argument. And in fact, Jesus does allude to it in the Gospel of Matthew. But what about the first argument? Let's go back to Romans 1. All that Paul describes here is pre, so before, the Jewish law. And even pre or before the Jewish people. And in fact is in connection with everyone because Abraham was even originally a pagan before God called him out of paganism. He talks about how humankind was originally created with that understanding of who God was and what his righteous standards were, but that they gave that up. The Jewish law came into play because humankind wandered too far away and safeguards needed to be set up to keep the extent of humanity's sin in check as well as point out our complete inability to follow it and point to our need for a savior from it. So to base any argument on the Old Testament law itself does not hold any weight because we're going back to even before the Old Testament law. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God For an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. See that they knew God. They had the evidence of him written on their hearts. They knew what his righteous standards were. But they made an exchange. They exchanged all of that for this. Idols creating their own man-made gods. Notice that humankind exchanged the glory of God knowing him and living as his representatives for a complete defiance of God and therefore his standards. They exchanged communion with the eternal power and holiness of God for what was temporal, weak, and man-made. Do you see that completely unbalanced exchange there? That foundational act, see this changed everything. This act changed everything for humankind. That foundational act led to a very interesting, naturally human, and sequential way of life. Since they've now declared their independence from God, humankind could do anything they wanted to now. 
without any repercussions. And what do they choose to do? Out of anything that they could do, now that they don't have to worry about God's standards, this is what they do. Out of anything humanity could do with their newfound freedom from God and his standards, humanity chose to indulge in this way of life. And this is very revealing. If you read along with me, In, in Romans chapter 1, start picking up in verse 26, we read, For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. That's the nice way of putting it. That was the very next thing that happened. After humanity cast off the standards of God, this is the very next thing they chose to do, and that's very telling. God let them have a life that did not honor Him since they chose to get rid of Him from their lives. Why did this happen? There's a very good reason for this. It goes all the way back to Genesis, hundreds of years before the Jewish law was even given. Being made in the image of God was directly connected with and inextricably ingrained into the original blueprint for marriage and sexual relations. The two went hand in hand. We see that hand in hand connection in Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image, in the image of God who created them, male and female he created them. It's all in one breath that this is set in. It all goes hand in hand. When you combine that with Romans 1, you see a clear picture. No matter what anyone thinks or says about human sexuality, there is an unmistakable foundationally spiritual connection between God, His creation of humankind, His creation of marriage, His definition and blueprint of what that marriage means, and our position as being made in that image, and therefore His representatives. In addition, we see that homosexuality is in direct connection. When we read those verses in Romans chapter 1, it's in direct connection with rebellion against God. Since God's design of marriage and sex between one man and one woman is directly tied to recognition of Him as most holy God, who He is, if you reject who God is, we see this in Romans 1, the very next domino to fall in humankind's history is the rejection of his design of marriage and sex. A complete opposite, 180 of what he designed it to be. They go hand in hand. So it's not as simple as love whoever you want. It shouldn't matter. Who cares? We actually see in Scripture the deep spiritual roots behind this current issue, no matter the attempts at its oversimplification. As we clearly see in Romans 1, support for anything other than that is a support for the rejection of God and His design and an exchange for what we as humans think is right. One might claim that to follow through with homosexual behavior is just following through with who they are. And here's the kicker. I'm not arguing against that. I have no issue with that. But while one thinks 
they are a certain way as a human being that doesn't make it glorifying to God. The Bible is also very clear that sin has cursed every facet of this world from the environment, and that's very easy to see how we are destroying this world, to our human bodies. While it's true that God has written out every day of our lives in his book, each of those chapters must come to an end someday as a consequence of that sin. So even though God weaves us together in our mother's wombs, we're not perfect, and sin still has an effect on our bodies. That's seen ultimately in our physical death. Many wonder, why would God create a person to be naturally attracted to the same gender even though that wouldn't be glorifying to him? While God forms us in the womb, the Bible also teaches that the curse of sin is passed on to us from our forefathers. The the question rather should be, why does God redeem those who recognize that attraction, recognize it for what it really is, and surrender it to God like with every other effect sin has had on who we are? The answer always is, no matter who you are and no matter what you struggle with, because of his grace found in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's always the answer. We all have our struggles and weaknesses because of sin. But God, in his grace, goes to work on all of us in this lifelong process of spiritual transformation by way of the Holy Spirit. If you're struggling with homosexual feelings, you are not a worse person than anyone else who struggles with anything else. In addition, believers in Jesus cannot just be pointing out the sin of homosexuality. That's wrong. It can't can't just be going around pointing out the sin of that. That's pointless. Anyone and everyone, regardless of who they are, must be pointed to who? Jesus. Not that, that's, not that that behavior is wrong, but everyone and any, anyone must be pointed to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who saves, not just coming out of any certain lifestyle or looking at things. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can change someone. Living by the law of Christ means that we hold firmly to a biblical understanding of this topic, but it also means that we treat those who identify with this worldview the same as we would anyone else. We show the same love and gospel that everyone needs to see and hear. We entrust their transformation to the Holy Spirit as we would anyone else. We leave all of that in God's hands. You may have heard about all of this for the thousandth time today. Or this may be the very first time. Maybe you won't come back to this church because of today. Of course, we didn't cover every scenario or situation. And if you have more questions, don't run away from them. Write them down, come to me, and we can talk about them. Following our example of Jesus, I'm not done yet. I hear people closing their Bibles. I'm almost done. I'm not there yet. Following our example of Jesus first means knowing his viewpoint and how he handled different situations. If you go back and you really look at the way that Jesus interacted with people in the Gospels, you'll see something very interesting. In every human interaction, Jesus held to God's standard, but gently taught and led people to faith in him. He didn't shy away from people who made him feel uncomfortable. 
But he also didn't accept their sinful behavior as perfectly fine. We can see how Jesus is, is the only example and authority that Paul could claim as he instructs the Thessalonians. Overall, I hope we've seen that we as believers in Jesus can have full confidence in God's word. And again, all I was trying to do was give scriptural evidence for why there are certain beliefs. But I hope that we have seen as believers in Jesus, we can have full confidence in what Paul tells Timothy, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that these are incredibly sensitive issues. And Lord, I pray that I presented what your word says in a sensitive way. I pray that if we're struggling with any of these things, that we would know that you love us, that you sent your son to die for us, and that you are transforming us into your image. I pray that as believers in Jesus, would not, we would not shy away from different situations. We would not shy away from different topics. We would not shy away from things that make us feel uncomfortable. But nor would we jump to the other extreme of, of, of being obnoxious and damaging to the kingdom of God. But Lord, I pray that we would take you as our example. Hold firmly to the truth of God's word, but express that in a gentle and loving way. We thank you that your word gives us every tool, every instrument that we need to not only live this everyday life, but to live it to glorify you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.